between my computer and the uh, the uh, HDMI lead down here. So it's my fault probably that we didn't have enough to start with this morning. However, the great man at the back sorted it out for us. That's the important thing. Now tonight we're going to be talking about prophecy once again. Lamp in the darkness, as you know, is the name of the series based on that verse in Second Peter, where Peter says you must pay close attention to what they, the prophets, wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. And the image he's giving us is of the, the, a, a dark world that we're moving through with very little clue about what's going on. And God sends prophets from time to time to tell his people, this is what you need to be, this is what I am, this is where the whole thing is going. And we've looked at uh, a few of them. And tonight is going to be a little bit of a history lesson again. The last one, I have to say, because the final group of three prophets that we're going to be looking at next time, not next week, but the next time I'm with you, will be the three whom we really can't date. <laughs> we don't know quite where they come in history. We've got clues, but nothing much more than that. And that says to me that God does not want us to be too obsessed with where they fit in with the political happenings around them and so on and so forth. Because what they say has got a, a timeless kind of, of importance. The message isn't tied into a particular time and place that would make it make more sense to us. However, for this last three that we're looking at tonight, that's not necessarily the case. So we need to read a bit of, a bit of history. Let's look at the last chapter of the second book of Kings. That's 2 Kings 25, right at the end of 2 Kings. And this is the story of something that happened in 586 BC. Verse 1. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's a two-year siege. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the sin wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night by the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though The Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In verse 11, well, verse uh, 9, let's see. Nebuzaradan, the, the field marshal of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burnt down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commandment, commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan uh, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the, the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stones and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick, trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold and silver. And so you could go on reading. It was the most moment of greatest shock that the people of God had ever had. 
in 722 BC, just a, a century or so before that, the northern nation of Israel had been taken off into captivity, as you know. But people in the south could still think, well, at least there is a country in the world that's still faithful to God. God's still in charge of his nation. And as we saw last time, some of the people who uh, were refugees from the north came and settled in Jerusalem thinking they'd be safe there. But they weren't. And things just went uh, from bad to worse. So how did it actually feel when that happened? Well, that's a certain passage I wanted to read, which is from Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations is five songs, one after another, that just talk about how it felt to go through that absolute devastation. Chapter 4 starts like this. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at the head of every street. And you get this image, don't you, of the precious things from the temple and the royal palace, which were so much valued, so much polished, so much admired, just lying in the dust, forgotten and, and abandoned, because they're no use to the people who are starved for bread. And they're no use to the Babylonian soldiers, whose, whose pockets are already stuffed so full of gold and jewellery that they haven't got room to take any more back with them. How the precious sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer a breast to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, whether a hand turned helper. So easy for Sodom. It was destroyed in an instant, just like that. They didn't know what was happening to them. But the punishment of Jerusalem just goes on and on and on. <laughs> and that, I think, is what makes Lamentations the key book in the Bible about the process of grief and what it feels to be going through something you can hardly bear and certainly don't understand. But it didn't say that way. And so we'll go to one third passage as a bit of background, and that will be from the book of Ezra. And if you get to Ezra and uh, look at uh, what happened just before Ezra came to Jerusalem, <laughs> you find that the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. It must have seemed like a sick joke when in the desolate city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah said, God has told me that you'll, they'll all be back in 70 years. We'll be rebuilding the city before you know it. One generation and we'll be building the city walls again. They didn't believe it, but it happened. And in 70 years they were back. And uh, you, you read the outcome of that in chapter 6 of Ezra and, and verse 13. Because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozan, and their associates, carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Shaggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions, 
and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. The temple services started again. God's name was honoured once again in the city that had been ruined and burned. And everything had turned around. So that's what explains the context of the last three prophets we're going to be talking about. Just to look back, we've talked about prophets from the 8th century, the 7th century, and the 6th century. The 8th century, as we said, was a time when writing became common. And the first prophets, minor prophets, this is, uh, to have their work written down, whether by them or by somebody else, were Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. And it was a, a relatively settled time, although there was trouble on the, on the horizon politically, and the uh, northern nation of Israel was closer to the edge than they thought at that time. They felt fairly secure, but they weren't. And Amos, Hosea, and Micah were each given a difficult job to do, to get home to people exactly what the reality of the situation was. Amos, for example, was given the message, God wants me up north. <laughs> he was a southerner from Tekoa, south of Jerusalem, down towards the Dead Sea. And suddenly plonked out of being a herdsman and looking after his trees and sent up to the northern city of Samaria to tell people just what God thought of that sophisticated, corrupt, evil, heartless culture. It wasn't an easy job to do. But he was telling them about the reality of God's judgment. They thought they could play fast and loose with God. Well, you can't, he says. God demands certain things of people. And if not, judgment was that. Then there was Hosea who got the message that God wants me to marry. <laughs> and he married a, a woman who he knew before he started was going to let him down and break his heart. And the trauma that Hosea went through tells us a lot about the reality of God's love for his people. God doesn't want to give his people up. How can I give you up, O Israel, says Hosea. Can I say like Adma and Zeboim, two cities that God destroyed? I can't do it. My heart is turned within me, says God. On the one hand, the pull towards righteousness and judgment and setting everything right. On the other hand, the pull towards forgiveness and allowing your people to come back to you once again. And that's the message of Micah, isn't it? Micah, God wants me in the city. Herzman, who in his book talks about ploughing and fields and crops and shepherding and all sorts of agricultural things, that clearly was his life. He was sent to Jerusalem alongside Isaiah, who moved in higher class circles and knew how, which fork to use at dinner time and things like that. And Micah suddenly plunged into the middle of those people to give his message. And his message is about forgiveness. Who is a God like you that forgives uh, iniquity, that pardons iniquity uh, and, and brings his people back? There is no God in the universe like that apart from you. And so Amos, Hosea and Micah had an important job to do in a country that, where stability was starting to disappear. And it was important for them to see some important lessons about judgment, about God's love, and about God's forgiveness before it all happened. Well, you move on 100 years, and as we saw last, last time, uh, you, you reach the time of crisis. The nation of Israel has disappeared, the northern nation. The south is looking more and more um, vulnerable and caught between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Sometimes the Egyptians, although the Egyptians aren't too powerful any longer, those three great world empires control the fates of the smaller nations uh, in their midst. And Nahum, Zab Habakkuk, and Zephaniah deal with the, the crisis situations of the seventh century. Nahum uh, talking about the crisis of control. Is God really in charge? Is there really somebody who's, who's in charge of the haphazard events that hit us from day to day? 
When you get up in the morning and you switch on the news on the radio or you look at the newspaper, can you really see some sort of divine hand behind this? And that's the kind of question it seems to me that Nahum is, is asking and answering, saying, yes, there is a God who will judge not only his people but all of the nations round about. I need to rest in that. Then there's a crisis of, of, of confidence. Habakkuk is somebody who believes in Nahum's message, but he can't understand how God is doing it. God, see what the Assyrians are doing. Please take them away. Okay, fine. I'll send you the Babylonians instead. What? What's all that about? What is God doing? And uh, Habakkuk battles through this question of why is he doing it this way? To the point where he can think to himself, well, I'm going to go out in the watchtower, watch what's going on, but wait. <laughs> when God wants to tell me the answer, he will in his own time. And yet, and through everything that happens, even if the fig tree doesn't blossom, even if there are no animals in the barns, even if there are no grapes on the vines, I'll still carry on trusting him because he is the only one who knows the answers. And finally, there's Zephaniah, a crisis of complacency. And he's speaking to people. He said, yes, we believe the Habakkuk message that God will pull us through and we just have to trust. But meantime, we can live how we like. And Zephaniah is saying, the day of the Lord's coming, you're absolutely right. But if God's judgment is searching, it's going to search you too. And so the judgment of God is going to be something you should be fearing rather than looking forward to. He's not just going to uh, judge your enemies. He's going to judge your heart as well. And so the reality of, 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 of being the people of God involves living in God's way, doing what God says. And those crisis prophets uh, give us uh, that kind of message. Now we reach the sixth century. <laughs> century later, and this is where the big disaster comes that we've just read about. And there are three prophets here once again, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And they, I think they have a, a, a similar kind of message because they're the prophets of renewal. The voices of recovery saying, this is what God wants to do. You've sinned, you've been punished, uh, you've lost the original initiative that you had, but God isn't finished with you yet. And you get Haggai saying, finish the job. Go on, build that temple. Don't let your enemies daunt you because you can be easily put off by outward circumstances. You trust God. It was God that brought you back across the desert to do this job. And Haggai says in Haggai chapter 1, what's going on? You're building big houses for yourself. And we look up at the hills. And, oh, what's that building? It's half finished up on the hillside. Oh, that's the house of God. The time is not yet that the house of God should be built. Well, how come you're building these massive houses for yourself and you're not getting on with the temple? That is what you're here for. God has worked a miracle. He's brought you back across the desert, miles and miles and miles, so that you can do one specific job. And instead, you're feathering your own nest. You're living life at your own speed. He, his concerns don't really matter to you anymore. And Zechariah, I think, is a man who says, see the vision. And Zechariah is a young prophet who gets visions in the, in the night. And uh, uh, there are visions of the future. And what God wants to do with his people. And, uh, and how incredible the future is going to be. When people from the nations round about... People from the, the, the other small nations like the Israelites who've never been interested in the Israelite God. And people from the world empires who've had gods of their own who seem to be conquering the whole world. They'll come and they'll say to a Jew, can we go out with you to, to, to Jerusalem and worship our God? Because we know that he's the Lord of the universe. <laughs> and that whole idea is, is what Zechariah wants the people to see. That you're involved in something really, really big. God is really going to do something massive. You're not just changing your nation. You are changing the planet. And finally, there's Malachi. And Malachi, right at the end, a generation after Haggai and Zechariah, 
When things have gone again a little bit off the boil, they're saying, look, keep on going. Don't give up. Don't slide into complacency. Just keep on doing what you've promised God. That's all he demands of you. So that's uh, where we're going tonight. Let's look at the background story to start with. First of all, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonian army. Well, I've got 587 BC on here. It was probably 586, but somewhere around there, Jerusalem is destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar uh, finally loses his patience with King Zedekiah, who has not been the most loyal of servants to him and has failed to pay his taxes for several years. He's just chancing his arm to see how much he can, he can push it. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar finally thinks, right, we're going to deal with him. And so he marches uh, in with a massive army and camps around the city and uh, uh, the, the, the city eventually gets totally destroyed and we read about it as you see in 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36 which is a parable, par- parallel passage in Chronicles and there's a lot about it in Jeremiah as well especially chapter 39 and it's chilling stuff. To remind you of the timeline back in 931 was when the big original nation split into two and the northern nation as we said disappeared in 722 uh, the, the, the South carried on, and we had that little blip just four kings before the end of the show when Josiah started turning everything around and reforming everything. And it's as if God was giving the Israelites at that point a glimpse of what it could have been like if they'd just done what they were supposed to. But it was too late, and uh, the four kings that followed him were all a pretty uh, unfortunate, ineffective lot. And in the end, uh, exile started to nibble away at the people. There were three different periods of exile, if you remember. First of all, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar marched in and took away some of the key people in the country, the royals, the people who may have been leaders in the future generation, the promising young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All of those young Hebrew princes were taken off to Babylon. And uh, as we'll see when we get to the book of Daniel, and as you probably know, they were given a Babylonian education, new Babylonian names, Babylonian food. And they were, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do was to brainwash them, to turn them into model Babylonians who would never revolt against him again. But he hadn't reckoned with the fact that they had a God who was far more powerful than any of the Babylonian gods that he worshipped. However, the exile went on in 597, there was another exile to Babylon, and this time it was people who weren't quite so prominent, and they weren't taken into the city and educated. They were sent to a slave camp, basically, to work. It wasn't a bad slave camp, and they could still get married and have babies and build communities and things like that, but still they were hundreds and hundreds of miles from home, down by the Kibar, and Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, was there as a large group of People who were just anxious to know what was going on back in in Jerusalem and what God was doing with that city that they longed to get back to and probably would never see again because they got taken away across the desert. And then as we've read, in 586, 87, you reach the exile. Jerusalem is destroyed and everybody, apart from a few poor people, as you might remember from 2 Kings 25, was marched on a forced death march up the road to Syria and then down along the Euphrates to the city of Babylon. And uh, meanwhile, Ezekiel is, is in place in Babylon to give the news to the people of, of, uh, of Israel in the slave camp about what's happening there. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter 4, uh, God says this, Son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem. They'll eat bread by waiting with anxiety and drink water by treasure and in horror because bread and water will be scarce. They'll be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. 
And so he gives Ezekiel a recipe for some really horrible bread. Bread made out of the worst grains you could imagine. Sort of stuff that you'd never normally make food out of. But this little picture is supposed to show the people of Israel, this is where it's like Jerusalem. They're scratching for any food they can get. They'll even eat this stuff. And God uh, goes a little far and says, I want you to, to cook it over a fire of human excrement. And Ezekiel recoils and says, Lord, I'm a priest. I can't do that. And God says, okay, you can use animal dung instead. But the whole objective is to produce something that's really offensive and not very pleasant. And I find it really interesting that now on the internet you can buy Ezekiel 4-9 bread. <laughs> and it's supposed to be really good for your health. You can even get it in a cinnamon flavour if you want. You know, it costs a fortune. Don't buy it! What God was saying was, this stuff is rubbish. And so to be selling it as special divine bread because it comes from the Bible is a little bit silly to put it mildly. So the situation in Jerusalem is getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, you read about what happened. Jeremiah 39 gives the same story that we've read in 2 Kings 25. How uh, Zedekiah and his chief nobles, his advisors and his family try to escape out of a gate inside of Jerusalem, out of the palace and up the, the valley towards the land of Moab where hopefully they can just sink into the background. And if they're not living in a palace any longer, at least they're safe and they're alive. But the Babylonians know exactly what they're going to do. They've been besieging this city for two years. They know exactly how Zedekiah is going to go. And so Zedekiah has only reached the plains of Jericho, just a few miles away, when he's captured by the Babylonians and taken north to Riblah, where Nebuchadnezzar has his headquarters. And there, for the first and only time in his life, Zedekiah sees Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a brutal story, isn't it? It's Riblah. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. And then, just to make sure that the last sight that Zedekiah ever remembered seeing, he put out Zedekiah's eyes too and bound him with on shackles to take him to Babylon. And the destruction went on in Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon had built was torn down. Those two massive bronze pillars, Boaz is the name of the, the, the one on the right and Jachin, the one on the left, and the, the great molten sea, the great bath that would hold 4,400 litres of, of water in, in, in front of it there, all of it taken off to Babylon. All of the glories of the temple suddenly disappeared. On the internet, I found a, a site where somebody has tried lovingly to reconstruct what the inside of Solomon's temple must have looked like. Can you imagine Babylonian soldiers coming in and seeing this kind of stuff? In the old original uh, temple, or tabernacle. There was only one of those seven branch candlesticks, but Solomon had ten in the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine a Babylonian soldier walking and saying, whoa, look at this son, this is incredible. <laughs> and uh, the whole place was just torn apart. And those who should not have been anywhere near the house of the Lord were rampaging over it and looting and pillaging and ransacking. And Lamentations tells you uh, the whole story. So Nebuzaradan was not finished yet. He made a plan for what was going to happen to Jerusalem. And he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building, says King, he burned down. And then just anybody who was anybody was sent on that route march. And of course, you can go straight from uh, Jerusalem, uh, which, as you can see, is on the left there, across to uh, Babylon. And it's not too long a journey, but it's desert. So you can't go that way. You have to go north, up past Ribla, where Nebuchadnezzar's headquarters were, right up to Aleppo. And then you catch the line of the Euphrates, and you follow the Euphrates River all the way down into Babylon. 
It was a march that would have taken at least four, probably five months. Many people probably died on the way. It was the most horrible, brutal thing that happened. But you know, God had a plan to deal with the situation. And so he had his prophets all over the place. Well, I'll talk about the major prophets first. Uh, it's interesting, if you read the book of Jeremiah, how it's pretty clear when you read about Jeremiah and the problems he had with people in Jerusalem before the end came, you can see very clearly there were three great sources of leadership in the country. There were the prophets, most of whom were saying different things from Jeremiah. And there were the priests, who were feathering their own nest and had uh, kept the services running, but, but uh, were, were, were not really concerned too much with, with morality or with the worship of God. And there was the king. Mm -hmm. Prophet, priest, and king. There was three sources of leadership. And uh, it's interesting how God positions his prophets around the place. This is the Babylonian Empire uh, at the time we're speaking about. And Jeremiah... The prophet who never wanted to be a prophet. You remember at the start of the book of Jeremiah, he argued with God and said, no, I don't want to do this. And God says, you're going to do it. I've commissioned you before you were born. I've got this job sorted out for you. And Jeremiah is left there as God's real prophet in the midst of a land where the false prophets are still around, still saying the wrong things. And the prophet is there. There's another prophet, though, called Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, if you remember, was 30 years old at the time when God gave him his first great vision. And 30 was the age at which Ezekiel would normally have entered the priesthood and started serving in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was from a great family, so he was obviously destined to be a priest from the moment he was born. And so you've got Jeremiah, the prophet who didn't want to be a prophet in Jerusalem. You've got Ezekiel, the priest who was never a priest in, 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 in Babylon. And uh, what about the third thing? Well, you've got Daniel, <laughs> the ruler who was never a ruler because he was taken away in his early teens and he's right in the city of Babylon. Prophet, priest and king. And uh, God's got the whole situation covered. And so 70 years later, the recovery takes place. How did the recovery happen? Well, first of all, in 586, the exiles go to Babylon. But in 539, there's a new king. A new empire, in fact. The Medes and the Persians have taken over from the Babylonians. And Cyrus the Great has a different policy. He doesn't want everybody worshipping uh, the Babylonian gods and turning into Babylonians. He wants his subject people all over the empire to be able to worship their own gods, build their own cultures. Because he's begun to see that what he needs is not so much an empire as a commonwealth, a family of nations where people have their own distinctives, but they all belong together. And so, to the amazement of the Jews and the delight of, of those who believe Jeremiah, he sends them back to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel and Joshua uh, are the two great leaders who lead a small party back in 538 when the uh, decree is issued. The temple rebuilding starts a couple of years later. But in the meantime, people have moved into the land who didn't belong there. And they do not want the Jews coming back and rebuilding their city. And so they start to spread rumours about the, the Jews. And the word goes back to Babylon that the Jews are planning a civil war, planning a breakaway movement. And what does the king think about this? And so, discouraged by their enemies, they stop work. In 520, though, they start again. Then the building is com the temple is complete by 516, and it's dedicated in 515. So what made them start again? Well, the short answer to that is Haggai and Zechariah. Finally, we're getting to tonight's prophets, but don't worry, it won't take that much longer. Haggai and Zechariah start prophesying and say, do it. God has sent you here to do that. Don't be uh, discouraged by your enemies. 
And word goes back to the king saying, have you told these Jews to do this? They're starting something against you. And as you can see in the book of Ezra, the king has a search made in the records and he finds out that, yeah, yeah, he did actually say that. And so that he said, yeah, don't stop them. Give them what they need. Help them carry on. And so from far from being a reversal, the situation with the enemies turns into an impetus to make the whole thing happen all the better. And Tatanai and the other guys, um, what's his name, Shethar Bozanai, for some reason I didn't remember his name, um, uh, have to, to do all they can to make the temple get rebuilt. And that's where Haggai and Zechariah come in. Uh, the final one is Malachi, and he comes after the temple has been there for a few years. In 515, it all starts again. 35 years later, things have started to tail off a little bit. One of the things you can pray about for me tonight is that I get home. Because <laughs> on the way back from uh, the morning service uh, this morning, my car started doing funny things. And I got a little warning light in the shape of a spanner on, 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 on my, my screen. And when I looked up the manual, it just says, get this car serviced as soon as you can. Well, it's not due a service for another eight, nine months, so I don't know what's going on there. But it started losing power. And so I thought, shall I borrow my daughter's car to car tonight? And she's in Birmingham, so I can't. <laughs> so I've driven the car down here very, very carefully, parked it right at the top of the hill, so I don't have to drive up that hill after the service, but just pray that I get up King's Ash Road. After that, it's easy. <laughs> and uh, it's just losing power. And there was thinking about that verse in Galatians all the way down, you did run well. <laughs> and the car's certainly not running well now. And it's just, it was fine. It was great this morning. Got down here in no time. It's fine. And suddenly it's just petered out. And that can happen in spiritual lives, can't it? That was what was happening in the days of Malachi, as we will see in a moment. So let's look at these three guys, just to finish off with. We've painted the background, we need to find out a little bit more about them, and we're done. First of all is Haggai. I've called him the only one, because everybody seems to think that he was, and there are indications in his writing that he was writing for those who had been around a while. In his second vision, for instance, or his second message, he, he says, listen, some of you remember what you used to hear the, about the temple being like. They probably hadn't seen the temple in the old days because it was just too long ago. But they heard from their fathers or their grandfathers about the glory of Solomon's temple. And you think that what's being built now is nowhere near as good. Well, don't worry, because God's going to do the most amazing things through it. And so Haggai is the one who appeals to the past and reminds people of the past. And he, well, we don't know how long he'd ministered before he got his moment of fame here. But certainly he seems to have faded out pretty quickly. Four prophecies within four months and then he's gone. So I suspect he was an old man, and God was giving him his great moment <laughs> at the, the end of his career. But we don't know any more than that. Zechariah seems to have been the young one, because he was around for a long time afterwards. And uh, uh, he, was, he was in the early 20s, we reckon, at the time when he started prophesying. And so a very old man and a very young man prophesying together. It's as if God is saying to the people, look, I'm going to use both ends of the age spectrum just to get it across to you people. I want the job finished. And the third one, well, Malachi have called the final one just because he came along and obviously was inspired by Haggai and Zechariah, but his message was really a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament because he looks back and says, this is not what the temple ought to be like. This is not what the priests ought to be doing. This is not what Haggai and Zechariah said. This is not what God said initially. You've got to put that right. And then he looks forward and says... The son of righteousness is going to arise with healing in his wings. And before he comes, I will send Elijah. And uh, Jesus confirmed he was talking about John the Baptist. Uh, the, the messenger who will introduce 
the great solution to the whole situation. So he's looking forward to Jesus and he's looking back into the Old Testament at the same time. And that, I guess, is why his prophecy is put at uh, the um, end of the whole Old Testament book. Well, let's just look at the dates because Haggai is an interesting one and Zechariah too, for that matter, because you can work out the exact dates on which things happened. No other prophet noted their work quite so carefully as that. And I, I think, again, that might be because uh, it meant a lot to Haggai. You know, he'd been around for a long, long time. And suddenly, towards the end of his life, God gives him these incredible rare days when he knows he has a message from God and uh, he's got to deliver it. And the first of those is on what would be in our calendar, the 29th of August, 590 BC. It's amazing you can date it like that, isn't it? But Haggai hears from God. And that's Haggai chapter 1. And he says in Haggai chapter 1, as, as we've mentioned, is it time for you to build your fancy houses, panelled with all the best wood you can get, and leave the Lord's house for another day? It's just because you're more concerned about your own lives. You think you're Christian heroes. You've come back across the desert to do God's will. You're great servants of God. And now you've just lapsed into mediocrity because you will not finish the job you started. And it's still a message for today, isn't it? The Christian world is still littered with unfinished projects that people love to start because it got the dominance and, and, and admiration, but they've never finished it. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, says Ecclesiastes, and the, uh, 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 the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. The patience that carries a job through to its conclusion, rather than the pride that says, I must do something new or forget about me. So Haggai starts there, and then the rebuilding begins the next month. It took about three weeks for them to get the message, but in the end they think, oh, you know, old Haggai is right. They started rebuilding, and then the next month, Haggai has another message on the 17th of October. And this other message is just a strengthening, confirming one. You can read it at the start of Haggai chapter 2. That's the one where he says, you know, this temple looks nothing like the old one. You remember that picture of Solomon's temple you saw a minute ago? Well, that, as far as I can tell, is what the new one looked like. Less than half the size. Nowhere near as pretty, and certainly not as, as, as ornate or well-decorated as Solomon's one, because they just didn't have the way to do it. And Haggai says, don't worry, just keep going. God is with you, and that's the important thing. I am with you, says the Lord. And somewhere around this, this stage, at the end of October, or possibly the start of November, a new voice comes into the picture, and it's Zechariah. And Zechariah gets a message from God, just a few verses at the start of Zechariah chapter 1, where God says to him the same things that he's saying to, to Haggai. And it doesn't say very much at this point, but it must have been an incredible encouragement to Zechariah to find a young man standing up and saying exactly the same thing and saying, God has told me this too. This guy is dead right. So that's where Zechariah starts his ministry. And Haggai is his last uh, 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 prophecies on the same day in December. Two prophecies, again in chapter 2 of, of Haggai, and uh, they're looking forward now to what God is going to do and just how important this whole thing is. So if you look at the book of Haggai, the first message is really about remember what you're here for. Build a temple. Get going on this. The second message is about realize you're not on your own. I am with you, says the Lord. You're not just battling against these people on your own. The devil would like you to think that, wouldn't he? In situation after situation, just open your eyes and see the spiritual forces that surround you. Look at the size of the job that God has on you and the fantastic achievement he wants to bring through you. The third message says the blessing starts here. God is going to bring food back into your barns. He's going to bless your crops. He's going to multiply your efforts. You are going to be prosperous. 
Because now, unlike at the start of chapter one, you're not trying to achieve that prosperity yourself. You're doing what God wants, and through that, you're receiving the blessing that only I can give. Then the extra message which happens on the same day, the final one is just to say you're at the heart of God's plans. And a large part of that message is addressed to, to uh, the leaders of the people and to Rubbable, the prince in particular, saying that you're going to be like the signet ring in God's hand. You're going to be God's um, key instrument for making things happen. That was what the signet ring was on the hand of a king. You'd use it for stamping on documents. And that said, this is my will. This is going to happen. And to be God's signet ring meant you're a very, very important person indeed. So that was Haggai. How about Zechariah? Well, again, you can, yeah, you can divide the book of Zechariah, which is quite a bit longer than Haggai. He lived a lot longer into really four bits. First of all, there's the call to return, that first message that comes in October, November 520, as we've seen. And then, because Zechariah makes his prophecies too, copying Haggai, to start with anything, uh, on February the 15th, 519, he has eight visions in one restless night, as Chuck Swindle put it. <laughs> it must have been quite a night, wasn't it? I mean, if you wake up four or five times in the night, that's bad enough. But eight visions, woof! I wonder what he had for breakfast the following morning. Anyhow, that was Zechariah, and those eight visions... Uh, help him say to people in picture language, look, this is what God is doing. And these are the dangers and the pitfalls you could fall into. And this is what you're getting wrong right now. And those eight visions, uh, bizarre as they are, are a different way of putting it. Haggai was such a straight shoulder, straight from the shoulder sort of talk. Zechariah is much more about pictures and language and, and fan visions. Eight visions in one night. And then... Um, uh, after, and that's uh, through to chapter 6, and then in, in chapter 7, you get four messages on the same day. You'll see if you read it that the Israelites, uh, some of the Israelites, recognizing now that Zechariah really is a prophet, come to him and say, Listen, we have a question. We've been fasting on certain days because of the destruction of the temple. It looks like it's all going to happen again, so do we carry on fasting? And Zechariah doesn't answer them straight away. In his first message, God just says through Zechariah, what are you fasting for? Is it about me? Or is it about you? Is it just tradition? Or is there a real spiritual concern behind it? Because fasts and, and festivals, that's not really what it's about. They're, they're not really the heart of what I want from you. And then Zechariah gets another message. And through that message, God says, listen, look after the poor. Be merciful to the needy. Look after widows and orphans. Ju ju treat one another justly and fairly. That's what I really want. Mercy, not sacrifice. And then God gives him another message, and then another message, and the whole thing builds up until finally in the fourth message, he is answering their question <laughs> and talking about whether they should be fasting or not. But God just gives him wave after wave of messages in the one day so that it builds up gradually at a speed that people can take in. And finally, the temple's completed in 515, but Zechariah goes on prophesying. And the rest of the book, from chapters 9 to 14, is two oracles. Two things that God has to say about the future. And one of them deals with the other nation around about and what God is doing with them and sets Israel in the context of that. The other one looks further into the future and looks to the coming of God's Messiah and the holiness he wants to bring, not just to his people, but to the whole world. And it's one of the most breathtaking visions in the whole of the Old Testament. And it backs up Haggai perfectly the two of them just fit together so well then finally there's malachi and so what does malachi all about well it's about god answering back to a new generation who becomes cynical and time again malachi says you say this well what you've done is that 
You say, how have we done that? Well, I'll tell you. And so it's as if God, through the book of Malachi, is having an argument with his people again and again. And the kind of things he's saying is, first of all, I've always loved you. And they come back and say, you've loved us, then why are we in the mess we're in? <laughs> and God says, listen, I've never let you down. I've been faithful to you throughout history. I have always loved you. He then says, you're treating me with contempt. How are we treating you with contempt? And God says, listen, look at the sacrifices you're offering. You're bringing the most diseased animals you can. You're twisting the rules to make sure that you don't lose out even when you seem to be sacrificing to me. You're treating me with contempt. You don't do what I've asked you to do. And then he talks about the fact that even your priests are dishonoring me. The priests who are keeping the services running are, are living for their own benefit, uh, stuffing their own wallet while they're maintaining a facade of being religious. And they're teaching people evil instead of good. And then uh, fourth, he talks about the fact that they're unfaithful to one another. Men are divorcing their wives. And while that's allowed by the Old Testament law, what you are supposed to do is give your wife, your ex-wife, a bill of divorcement. And that means she is set free so she can marry somebody else. Now, what they were doing was divorcing the wife and cutting her off from any kind of support, but not giving her the bill of divorcement, which meant she could go somewhere else to get support. It was a cruel way of saying, you're on your own feet now. <laughs> Let's see if you can survive. And God says, this shouldn't happen. I hate divorce that covers uh, uh, violence as with a garment. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a hidden way of just being spiteful and nasty and malicious to people who cannot help themselves. So he's talking about that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and finally says, you're robbing me and you're blaming me. You're robbing me of what's my due, and you're blaming me for the disasters you've brought on yourself. But he ends the book by talking about what's going to happen. He said, to you who take this seriously, and there are signs in the book itself that some people who heard Malachi's uh, rebuke uh, were influenced by it and heard it and listened to it. And uh, uh, God says, they're going to be mine me. The day when I come to make up my treasured possession, they will belong to me. And this remnant will see the most amazing things happen. Remember the law of my servant Moses, says Malachi at the end of his book. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And 400 years later, Jewish leaders are pointing at John the Baptist and saying to Jesus, Is this him? Is this Elijah? <laughs> and Jesus the son of righteousness with healing in his wings says, yes, the plan is coming to completion. A great way for the Old Testament to end. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, once again, we've been a, a, a quick tour around a very big subject. And I just pray that you help these three prophets too to come alive to us in what they have to say that talks to our lives. Help us to be like the people to whom I was speaking, who recognised the laziness and the selfishness that so easily takes over our lives. Help us to stop it encroaching on us in, in, in the way that it so easily does and to serve you with our whole hearts. Help us not be daunted by those who speak against us, but help us carry on doing what you want us to do and living in your way. Help us, like the people of, of Zechariah's book, to see the vision, to keep on going towards the end that you've promised and to be faithful to you throughout. And help us, like Malachi's people, to see the, the importance 
of serving you to the full with everything we've got to bring the Jews to you that we claim to be bringing to you, to love other people sincerely from the heart and not use religion as a cloak for our own petty grievances. Help us to learn from these prophets the hard things they have to teach, but help us also look at the great promises, the light shining in the darkness, and may that cheer us and help us to live for you with everything we've got. We ask it for your namesake as we end this service. Amen. That's it.